Welcome to Crime Corner, where we examine all things crime, whether it be on the page, on the screen, on the street, or in the courtroom. I'm Matt Coyle, author of the Rick Cahill Crime Series, and I'll be your host for as long as it takes. My guest tonight, Lisa Redman, but on the titles of her books, it's Lisa Marie Redman, is a retired cold case homicide detective from Buffalo, New York. She handled a number of high-profile cases and has appeared on numerous television shows, including Dateline, one of my favorites, and Murder by Numbers. A Means to an End is her third book in the Cold Case Investigation series. Lisa's short fiction has appeared in Buffalo Noir, Down and Out, the magazine, and other publications. She's a member of Sisters in Crime and lives in Buffalo with her family and one ungrateful cat. And aren't they all? Welcome, Lisa Redman. Hi. Thanks for having me. You bet. Did you like my um, cool intro music? It was very epic. There Very epic. Yeah. As my listeners know, I paid uh, $21 for that, I think. Um, anyway, so uh, as I mentioned, A Means to an End is the third book in the um, Cold Case uh, series, but it's also the third for Lauren Riley, your protagonist. Can you tell us a little bit about her and then a little bit about A Means to an End? Lauren is a cold case homicide detective for the city of Buffalo, which I used to be in real life a cold case homicide detective for the city of Buffalo, but I am nothing like my character. She is much more driven than I am. She is a lot less friendly than I am, almost to the point of reserved. A lot of people think she's cold. And... She also gets into a lot more trouble than I did. <laughs> so what is she up to in a means to an end? So the me- in a means to an end, it's the third book in the series. And it didn't start out to be a trilogy, and it's not going to end up being a trilogy. But the first three books sort of hold a, a continuous arc. And all the questions that start in the first book, which is A Cold Day in Hell, get stretched out through the second book, which is the murder book, and into the third book, which is A Means to an End. And I really hated to leave loose ends hanging in the second book, the murder book, but Mm -hmm. I'm not allowed to have a 600-page book yet. I'm still too new. so You're never allowed to have a 600-page book, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> so I had to uh, answer all the questions, wrap everything up in the, at the end of book three. So if anyone is mad about cliffhanger endings, I promise they all get, all the loose ends get tied up in book three. Thank and, you. Uh, you. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. <clears throat> no, I, I was just going right. to say that. I, as well, uh, get upset about the whole cliffhanger thing, and I never thought I would be a cliffhanger-ending person. And yet here I am with my fingers on the edge of the cliff writing out these stories, and I apologize. You should. But I no, do you shouldn't apologize. Never apologize. I think um, – I don't think there's anything wrong. I think if the cliffhanger ha- endings are done where it's not a everything cliffhanger, they're fine. Now, I say that because I've written – Every book I've written just about has had to carry over to the next book. But um, 
you actually uh, the the uh, interview is going to be significantly shorter because you stole one of my questions about uh, whether Lauren was like you. So I expected about a ten minute answer on that, but we'll continue to go. Um, so, like you said, this is a it's a it's an arc of her of what happens to her her character, and when she I'm not hmm, hmm, maybe I shouldn't ask this question. Let me say this: she she gets an injury in the second book. Is that okay to say? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she returns to the forest after this injury, and it's a scary thing, and it's uh, very serious. And so when she returns after this violent injury, does it change the way she goes about her life and the way she uh, investigates cases? Absolutely it does. I know a lot of people who have series, their character doesn't age. They sort of stay static. But in my series, my character is getting older. And from book one to book two, she she has this life-altering injury. And that carries over into book three. And And she's getting older. She starts out at 38 in book one. And she's in her 40s. Yeah, yeah, right? And she's she's 40 in book four, or excuse me, book three. But part of her her arc is that she is getting older and she's experiencing the things that women go through as they're – she's a mom and she has two daughters and they're off in college. And so she's experiencing empty nest. And – you know, she's dealing with that, and then she has this injury, and part of the thing that changes in her is that she doesn't have her daughters to look after anymore, and someone very close to her gets hurt, and she becomes much more reckless in her pursuit of justice than she would have been if her children were still at home, if she didn't have that responsibility. Yeah, that, that comes across. Um, 40 is a little disconcerting, though. I didn't even think people could function at, at age 40, but maybe they do. I'll find out when I get there. Um, <laughs> so it's not all – you think she came back from this serious injury back in the force, and there's a, a variety of uh, police agencies that, that, are, are, that deal, are dealt with in this book. But you would think that when she comes back on the job that um, – Everybody would be happy to see her, but that's not really the case, is it? Well, you know, especially how she comes back. And it doesn't really give too much away by saying they have to form a task force with various agencies. And whenever you put competing agencies together, you're always going to have tension. And I, I speak from experience on that, having been a part of a task force. And you are always going to have people with big egos because they were chosen to be part of the task force because they are good at what they do. So you're going to have big egos um, butting up against each other. And that's part of the conflict in the book right off the bat is these big egos butting up against each other. And, you know, that's one of the obstacles she has to overcome trying to figure out the, the central core of the mystery of book three. 
but and I won't give away a spoiler here. There's more than just the egos um, regarding her coming back from some of the other cops, which is really good stuff. Okay, so her relationship with her partner, Shane Reese, I found really interesting. It's close, but not too close. Um, can you talk about that? And does that come from your experience as a homicide cop? Yes. I was always blessed to have excellent partners, even on patrol, even when I was in, I was in the special. So I was on patrol first for about five and a half years. Then I spent about eight years in our version of the special victims unit. And then I spent about eight years in cold case. And I had the best partners. Yeah, I spent 22 years on the department. I got on the job when I was 22, and I retired when I was 44. So I had literally spent half my life as a cop when I retired. Wow, wow. But I had always been blessed with great partners. And Reese is sort of um, all the best parts of all of my partners over the years. Although, if you ask any one of my old partners, they'll tell you it's them. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool if they care. Um, but there is still a little bit of a distance between them in terms of um, he's a, he holds things back a little bit in terms of of personal issues and things like that. I was wondering if that's um that's something you came up with or you know I mean I guess there's just some um, partners you're going to be closer in different ways than others. I mean they have a very close relationship for sure, but maybe not in every way. Well. Once again, basing that on my real partners, there was always, you know, especially because, you know, for the most part, I always had male partners. And when you spend 40 hours a week in a patrol car with someone, you're spending more time with that person than with your significant other. So you have to have a very clear dividing line that no one crosses over on either side or that partnership is not going to work. Right. And I tried to show that in the book, that you can be very close and really care about your, you know, your partner in, you know, in a way that it goes beyond friendship because you're literally putting your life in that other person's hands. Yeah. But it doesn't always have to cross over into romantic. Um, right. Although people always want it to, it seems like, you know, I I get asked that question a lot about the book. Are they going to get together? Are they going to get together? Well, and the answer is you have to wait and see. (laughs) Well, I'm on the other side. I really don't necessarily want them to get together, Um, but that's just me. Um, So, this is what I was going to ask you about how much of you was in Lauren, but I'm not going to ask that. However, I will say that Lauren is a, obviously a well-written, well-written, but a three-dimensional character. And we already, you already went over that a little bit flaws and all, and she's very appealing. And I think that part of her appeal to me is that she's not a super cop. She's not a super woman. She's bulldog, but, um, I just I like the the not terribly flawed but flawed and uh, characters that can't overcome everything. It's not just uh, or have um, a sidekick who does it for them. Is that something that appeals to you? 
Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm always critiquing uh, cop shows on TV and movies, you know, how they portray the female cops. And I can tell you that in my 22 years, not even when I did the prostitution detail and I was um, actually dressing like the hooker, did I Uh ever wear a tank top on the job. I never wore high heels. I never carried a purse while I was a detective ever. And those things, when I see them on TV or in the movies, it drives me insane. It drives me insane. Um, so I, I am always conscious of how female police officers are portrayed. And one of the other things I see how female police officers are portrayed is that they are squeaky clean, noble, mm-hmm. you know, pillars, you know, lawless. You know, they, you know, either they're, either they're a total train wreck or they're absolutely noble and flawless. Right. And, right. You know, in any, and like in anything else, you know, Lauren kind of falls, you know, smack in the middle, you know, he's not, he's not the best cop on the job, but she's better than average. And she's not the most morally upright cop on the job, but she's better than average. You know, mm-hmm. her good points outweigh her flaws, but she definitely has some major flaws. Right. And, uh, my brother-in-law was a cop in L.A. for 33 years, and he's probably the man I respect more than anybody in my life because he made more of his life than anybody came from a pretty horrible childhood. Um, but I can say from personal experience, for some of the things we've done, it's not squeaky clean. Anyway, um, that's for Gene. Um, Buffalo, <laughs> Buffalo reads like yeah, – he, he's retired. He's good. He's good now. Um, Buffalo reads like another character in the book for sure, and uh, your love for it is obvious. How important is the setting of Buffalo in – Maybe all your writing. Well, Buffalo is definitely a character in all of my writing because Buffalo is a character. You know, we can't win a Super Bowl. We're snowed in eight months out of the year. We eat chicken wings, and we really do eat chicken wings once a week. Uh, you know, some sometimes, you know, the things that they say about a town are true, and those things are true, you know, and we are Buffalo Bills crazy in this town. Uh, you know, even though we can't win a Super Bowl, we're so loyal. We're so loyal. And uh, we went from this great powerhouse at the turn of the century, yeah. literally the city of light, to this rust belt dinosaur in the 80s when all the plants were closed and now all of a sudden and even from the time i first started writing the first book in the series a cold day and how i had to go back and change some things because we're experiencing this sort of renaissance you know oh, cool. they built this it, which is it's phenomenal uh where the old uh, memorial auditorium where the sabers used to play is and there was a big huge parking lot now there's a brand new arena where the Sabres play now, but there's yeah. also a thing called Canal Side. They they dug out the Erie Canal, the terminus of the Erie Canal, and there's a huge park there where they have concerts, and there's a naval park, and there's something going on 24-7, and 
it's just amazing. And I worked midnights when I was on patrol, and that was my yeah. my district was precinct three. And then when we turned from precincts to districts, it was B district. And I worked down there. And if you, someone had told me 20 years ago that there there'd be this huge entertainment complex down there, I would have told them they were nuts. It, you know, literally the sidewalks rolled up at five o'clock, and yeah. now. You go down, you know, unless unless you're going to a bar because bars are open till four o'clock in the morning in Buffalo. Every <laughs> well, night gotta of the week. Got to sell the wings. Got to sell the wings. So it really is, you know, it's a great contrast between old money, which there is a lot of old money still left in Buffalo, and absolute uh, dirt poor and. Mm-hmm. There is, you know, and those those two contrasts are always butting up against each other, constantly, right. constantly, and that just makes for a great setting for crime. No question, makes for a great conflict. Let me say this about the Buffalo Bills. Um, I was a uh, San Diego Charger fan, um, a minor league team that moved to L.A. I'm not even sure if they're still in the NFL anymore, but. Um, the Bills going to four consecutive Super Bowls after losing all, you know, they lost them all. It's probably the greatest sports feat ever because most teams, when they make it to the Super Bowl and lose, do not even make the playoffs the next year. So that kind of resiliency is amazing. And if Norwood would have made that 47 yarder, things may have changed. But uh, it is really, I mean, heart, I got a buddy who's, uh, I used to work with who's from Buffalo, Die in the Wool, big Sabres fan too. He said by the time the fourth Super Bowl came around, like when they're playing the AFC Championship game, he didn't even want them to win because he didn't want to go through the pain of losing a Super Bowl again. But anyway, it was a great um, athletic feat. It really is, but no trophy. So, um, but you know what? But that's, but that's Buffalo. You know, four Super Bowl, four Super Bowls, no trophy. Right. You know, no Stanley Cup. You know, wide right. You know, no goal. You know, that's Buffalo. We're number two. We're, you know, New York City's. We're the second. We're the second largest city in New York State. Mm-hmm. And boy, you know, look who our our big sister is. You know, talk about being, you know, the the, the stepchild. You know, it's you know we just we're number two. But at this point, we sort of relish that because we are resilient. You know, and I I think I I hope that comes across in my character that we are always facing these obstacles just on a daily basis. And, you know, the characters, even in little ways, are overcoming these little obstacles all the time. Yeah. It, just by uh, living here. Right. And it's just with the new um, uh, police department, all that building, it, it comes across too. So a little bit of nuts and bolts. Um, you signed a three-book deal with Midnight Inc. And A Means to an End is yeah. the final in the three. And um, sadly, Midnight Inc. is closing their doors, which almost all my listeners now already know. And obviously, a lot of my friends uh, write, used to write for Midnight. So I'll say this. No spoilers. You said that um, the three books tied everything up, and they did. So for me, y- you could end the series there. But my question is, if you got the rights back, which I'm sure would happen in some amount of time, would you write a fourth uh, Lauren book because even with the closing up of the other three, you know, the first three books, it's also opened, um, definitely open to continue, in my opinion. 
find the question in there? Yes, I would write it. I, I would, I would write another, I would write another book. I would. Let's well, succinct answer. I would. Oh, you see, I was going to ask you about uh, your career. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. I was going to ask you about your career through uh, uh, becoming a homicide cop. You sort of touched upon it. Um, but let me ask you this. Uh, because of uh, a dearth of meaningful relationships in my own life, I watch a lot of cr- true crime on TV. And it seems to me a lot of the cold case episodes that they show, um, the original investigating detectives pretty much knew who did it, but they didn't have enough evidence or they couldn't connect the dots to, to get the, to, to have maybe the DA sign, yeah, let's arrest this guy. And it seems to take a case, sometimes fresh eyes to, to see even the evidence that's already there, go over the old files and everything and pull out, you know, the connect, connect, um, the connecting dots. Is that true of the cold cases you looked at or is it, or is it different? Oh no, absolutely. Absolutely. Fresh eyes are very important and you're right, a lot of times the detectives definitely thought they knew who did it. They had a good suspect, and that was ultimately when myself and my partners came on the scene. That was the person who ultimately we ended up being able to prove it did it. But before the advent of DNA, mm. they had no way to prove it. Right. So DNA has been just a huge, huge huge help in solving these cold cases and also but it but it also works both ways it also excluded some of the people that they were certain had done it were positive had done it and it turned out not to be that person and took us in a totally different direction and for that i am also grateful yeah how do you feel Um, on a situation like go ahead i'm sorry no, because it's not about putting anyone in jail. It's about putting the right person in jail. Right. Yeah, so that must have been kind of a, um, a harrowing experience when you guys are, you know, ready to – we just need that one last thing to clamp the cuffs on, and then the DN comes back and says, no way. That must that must, uh, that must be a hard feeling to deal with. It must make you, you know, take you back a little bit. Oh, I can't tell you how many times, uh, especially one of the cases that uh, I'm most known for and that got me on a bunch of those TV shows was the uh, bike path killer, serial killer case. My next question. And I actually work. Huh, I, I have, I must be, uh, have a touch of that ESPN. Uh, reading mine. There's a sports fan. So, I, when I was in our special victims unit, I was investigating the bike path killers' crimes as part of the special victims unit. Do you want to give? Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. I think we have a little bit of a delay. But do you want to give like a, just a little brief um, summary of what was going on? This you know this bike uh, path rapist over the time period and all that and what he not specific you know you don't have to get real specifics but what he'd done and how dangerous he was. Okay. All right. So, yeah, so I take it you're, uh, you'll edit this later? Oh, no. We're live. We're live. Really? Yeah. <laughs> we're live. We're live. Oh, even 
Now you're going to get nervous. Okay. <laughs> now, you, oh, okay. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good on. I'm good under pressure. If okay. I could edit this show regarding the host, would be much better. But now we're live, and then we just roll it out on the podcast. All right. Oh, okay. No, but just a little bit of backstory on the because I, I once again because I watch these shows I I saw an episode and I really don't know if I saw you on it or not but it, maybe it was Dateline forty eight hours I'm not sure which about the bike pack rapist and he went on for it was twenty five years of this right I mean not all the time but wasn't it a twenty five year span of crimes? Oh, um, almost thirty years. Almost oh my God! Years. Wow. So wow. for um, for um, for almost thirty years. The person uh, known as, at first he was called the bike path rapist, then he became known as the bike path killer. Yeah. Terrorized Western New York. He would prey on women and young girls, some as young as uh, 15, uh, walking or running on bike paths or in paths that were sort of, you know, used for, you know, in in some of these in neighborhoods, you know, sort of cut throughs, and yeah. he would lie in wait, and he would rape, come up from behind, sort of blitzkrieg these women, and um, assault them, and then he graduated from assaulting them to murder, yeah. and so when I was in the Buffalo Police Special Victims Unit, the, and he, he crossed jurisdictions, which was one of the problems that law enforcement had with actually identifying him, is that he committed his crimes in several local jurisdictions. And so Buffalo had some pieces of the puzzle. Amherst, which is a, a suburb to the north, had some pieces of the puzzle. Hamburg, which is to the south, had some pieces. Uh, uh, the sheriff's department had some pieces and so it wasn't until the murder of a woman named Joan Diver in 2006 that they actually formed a task force and all the players got together in this task force and all the pieces of the puzzle were in one place and I was a member of the task force and I believe there's 14 of us on the task force and uh, Joan Diver was murdered in September of 2006, and we arrested El Timio Sanchez in January of 2007. Wow! So I think that's I think that makes a huge case for cooperation mm-hmm. of the power of cooperation and the power of pooling your resources. And this was a man who, his name was Altimio Sanchez, and this was a man who terrorized Western New York for literally 30 years. Yeah. I was was 36 when I was on that task force, and he had been committing these crimes for about 30 years. Really, nobody knows for sure when he started. We assume when he was about 18, 17 or 18. It reminds me a little bit of the uh, Golden State uh, Killer in that um, do, do, do most serial offenders, you know, big, uh, violent offenders, if they do, if they rape for so long, commit so many rapes, do they 
And do they all graduate to murder unless unless they're caught beforehand? I, you know, I I I don't I don't want to give any definitives on that. Well, this is why. So don't worry. Without, yes, uh, with El Timio Sanchez, he committed rapes, then a homicide, then went back to rape. Hmm. Then homicide, then went back to rape. So he he sort of um, went back and forth between MOs, which was another reason why he was so hard to to, to pin down to catch. Hmm. And we had his DNA. We just couldn't. So we had live witnesses. We had witnesses that were alive, and we had his DNA, and we couldn't put a name to his. That DNA, which was so infuriatingly frustrating, you know, it was like banging your head against the wall. And then once we got on the task force and we were all, you know, they put the task force together, we realized that there was an innocent man in jail for rapes that the bike path rapist committed. And he had spent 22 years in jail for those crimes. And it, then it became our, once we found Altimio Sanchez, then our job became, now we have to find the evidence to prove that Anthony Capozzi, who was in Attica, didn't commit the rapes that he was convicted of. Yeah, I'd forgotten about and, that. And we got very, very, very lucky and very blessed that some evidence was found, was recovered at the Erie County Medical Center of old um, slides from rape kits. And in those slides were the slides from the victims that had been used to convict Anthony Capozzi and they exonerated him. And he wow. walked free after twenty, after twenty-two years. Oh man, that's unbelievable. Um, here's my last um, law and order question. Then I'll ask you a couple more about writing, and then I will let you go, and not edit any of this. Um, so, was there a cold case that you worked that was still open when you retired that you have strong feelings or regrets about? Every single one I didn't solve. There you go. Every single – I literally, I still wake up at night and find myself staring at the ceiling and thinking, maybe I should have done this, maybe I should have done that. I have wanted to pick up the phone and call the cold case office and double-check and see, you know, did you do this and did you do that, you know. But mm-hmm. part of what you had said before about fresh eyes, you know, you have to give the next – you hope that you leave the cold case in such a state that the next detectives that pick it up can hit the ground running, you know, and you have to trust. And the the two detectives that – one had just retired, the two detectives that had been up there after I left were excellent. So I had no I had no reason to – doubt their abilities at all so it was just me you know 
thinking, what what can I do? You know, still wanting to, you know, to try to solve these because it, it, they become so personal. You can't help it. You know, right. you you take them personal. You know, yeah. every single one you don't solve, it just you you never you never stop thinking about the, those moms, those dads, the, the children that call you that are adults now. You know, you never stop thinking about that. Which is one of the reasons why I became a writer. Well, I was always a writer. I wasn't a I wasn't a cop who became a writer. I was a writer who became a cop. And yeah. after you know, going back to the bike path case, after you know we made we made the arrest and Anthony Posey got out of jail. You know that I have you know that case mentally, emotionally, physically was devastating and I needed an outlet and I couldn't do the stereotypical I had two I had two small kids at home I had a three and a four year old at home mm-hmm. and you know m- mommy mommy's you know mommy's picking up her daughter from preschool and all the other mommies are like oh there's the mom who caught the serial killer you know and you it's very isolating and I had to do something something healthy I couldn't go out manizing or fall into a bottle, you know, like the cops on TV do. So I put together all my little scraps of paper, and my husband's best friend opened a bookstore, and he started a writing group, and I started going to the writing group. And that was where the kernels of uh, A Cold Day in Hell, the first book in the series, were born. All right, so um, and, go ahead. I had a question. No, I want to know what that is. No, I want to know what man I what does manizing mean? It's it's the I guess it's womanizing for a female <laughs> manizing. Oh. Well, I think that my <clears throat> my listeners are shocked shocked to hear such language. That's very I love manizing. They should be. They should be. I may use that. I also may it's use shocking. Rust Belt Rust Belt dinosaur, which is something that came up that's really good. Okay, I've lied because I have one because of something you said. I have one more question about Law and Order. Would you ever write? Uh, a novel about um, the bike path killer rapist. Well, two people already have. Okay, so they wrote um, novels or true crime. They wrote. There's two true crime books that were written about it. Yeah, uh, one by. No, not a novel. Um, one is by uh, my old partner. As a matter of fact, uh, the two of us. There, two people. It was. Two people from Buffalo got assigned to the task force, and it was my old partner Dennis Delano who wrote one of those books. So he he covered that pretty well. And one one of the books is called The Bike Path Rapist. Here's a um, little plug for them. One of the books is called The Bike Path Rapist, and one is called The Bike Path Killer. There you go. And uh, the other book was the other book was written by two uh, journalists from the Buffalo News. So. All very, very well researched and written. Two different perspectives. Very good books. But so I don't think I would ever write a, a true crime book about that case. Right. I think I think they got it covered. Uh, Maybe again, another case, a different case. Yes. It, it are, well, that goes to did, are any of the three or, or combined cases that you have written about um, from personal experience. No, none of the none of the cold cases in any of my books are based on 
any real cases. They are not. I, I to- totally made them up. Fiction. <laughs> In the words of... I, uh, uh, sorry, the delay is killing me. Go ahead. In the words of who? Robert Crace. Uh, I just make this shit up. But anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, Exactly. So you stole uh, – once again, you stole one of my questions because uh, in doing my research and uh, reading and watching up on you because you've had some uh, some videos via news um, is that it did say that you wrote most of that first book in a bookstore. How did that work? You touched upon it, but how, what was that process like? Well, I because I was a detective, because I was a cop, I always had a notebook on me, always, and I still – and to this day, now that I'm not a now that I'm not a detective, I carry a purse. But uh, before, I always have a notebook on me. So when I would see something that I thought was interesting, I would write it down. If or if I found a funny story or I heard overheard something, I'd write it down. And I started writing scenes down. And as my job became more stressful, I started writing actual little scenes of the story, this kernel of a story I had in my head. And then, once again, uh, we made the arrest in the bike chat case in 2007, and a dear friend of mine opened a bookstore here in South Buffalo, where I live, and he started a writing group, and I I, I joined the writing group. I needed an outlet. I needed a healthy outlet, and Mm -hmm. I gathered up all those pieces of notebook paper and I started to put together this story that ended up becoming a cold day in hell. And my main character, Lauren, is uh, sort of a conglomeration of other female cops that I knew over the years. Uh, I, in my book, she is tall and very thin and leggy and blonde. I am none of those things. So she is not me. She is not me. And I don't think if... I think if she was a real person, I don't think we'd even be friends. Oh. The only thing I, re- I the only thing I ha- really think I have in common with her is we both are addicted to coffee. Well, um, in leading up to this and some uh, messages we had going back and forth, you were telling me that you're delightful, so maybe she's not quite as delightful as you are. Um, I think my, I think the listeners will agree. Um, so. <laughs> We are running down a time. In five minutes, the studio is going to kick us out. But, but I have um, no. She didn't. Okay, Elena asked a question. Oh, why didn't she care? Oh, Elena, you have good questions. Okay, one for Elena. Why didn't you carry a purse when you were working? She's her own show. Why? Why wouldn't you? Okay. Why didn't you? Everything I. Why didn't I? Why yeah. would I need? Do men need to carry a purse? I don't know. What do you I'm, need? I'm, what do I'm I? Relaying- I'm relaying the question. No, I'm answering it. Um, I, I, I've been asked that before. Um, there's nothing. There's nothing I needed that, uh, to carry around with me. Not my lipstick. Not my wallet. Not you know. There's nothing. You know, when you put that uniform on, you are equal to the guys. Right. You know, I. I I would I would take a purse to work when I was a detective I would take it leave my desk my actually my detective does that all the time in my book but yeah. uh, no I I I I get that question all the time 
And I think it's just something that, because I don't go anywhere without my purse. And it's something that you really do have to, as a woman, and not, I like my daughter never carries a purse, but she's only 17. Um, mm-hmm. But as a, as a woman, you know, we're kind of, you know, you have to take your purse everywhere. You know, you have to bring all this stuff with you. And when you're a cop, the main things you have to bring with you are your, um, your wits and, you know, your partner. You don't need too much else after that. I, if I were a cop, I might need a fanny pack for my uh, cover all cover up, but that's just me. All right, so um, <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask you one more writing question, and hopefully we run out of time. Has your process changed um, writing process since you retired? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I used to be writing on the run, like I said, whenever I had the chance to. I would jot things down in my notebooks and, you know, squeeze an hour in here, an hour in there. Now I get up every day and I treat it like a job. I will get up and I will write from, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning when my kids go off to school until they come home from school. And then I might even try to squeeze in a couple hours at night. It is, it is my job now. And I, and I treat it as such. Well, that leads to the final question. Um, cause clearly I'm thinking you're writing what's next. Oh, geez. No one's ever asked me that. Oh, come on. This I don't know. No. Well, in terms of writing, you're no. not writing anything right now. Oh, um, I thought you meant what comes after writing. I was going to say, uh, Oh, well, that's I a better question. I'm, okay. I, I think, oh, what, what am I writing right now? I am I'm actually writing a, a different story, different characters for Crooked Lane. So I oh, good for you. Congratulations. In April. Yes. Fantastic. Yes. I did not know that. Yes. Good. I know there's a lot of writers. So you, you stopped me there for a second. You stopped me there for a second. I, I'm thinking, what's, what, what's in my future after writing? Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. There is no future after writing. It took me 42 minutes to stump you. Well, I want to thank you so much, Lisa Redman, and if you're looking at her books, Lisa Marie Redman, for coming in and talking about A Means to an End, a very good book that really, I mean, you want to learn about a, a cold case homicide cop? Read the book. It's really good. Interesting character, a lot of fun to read, and I do appreciate you taking the time to come on. And uh, You killed it, so thanks. Oh, thank you so much. You bet. Hopefully we'll do it again. We'll see when your next book comes out. Oh, I hope so. Thank you. Okay. When I get out of the uh, church parking lot, go home. <laughs> okay. Thanks. All right. Thanks. All right, folks. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, my next show will be in three weeks on September 13th when – Crime writer Rachel Housel Hall will join me to talk about her work and her upcoming guest of honor role at Left Coast Crime San Diego, where yours truly will be the master of ceremonies, um, or maybe just a um, not quite master of ceremonies. We'll see. One last thing. If you're in a book club and would like to an author to answer questions and talk about his work, I'd love to be the one to do it. You can find my email address on my website, mattcoilbooks.com. 
This is a copyrighted, trademarked podcast owned solely by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. See you in three weeks. I'm going on vacation in a week. If anyone cares.